different churches and church planners, these different things. Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And God, I thank you for the people here at True Life, our leaders. Thank you for people's generosity, for people's service. Lord, for people you're calling out and for things that you are doing. And God, I just pray that for the glory of your name and for the good of people, that you would continue to provide for and continue to multiply what we are doing here. Uh, help us to follow you and obey your word. God, I pray that you'd establish these different church plants, continue to raise up leaders, that you'd meet their needs, that you'd save people, that they then would in turn in time uh, be able to plant other churches. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your word this morning and um, we approach what can be a difficult subject, God, that we would uh, approach it with grace and humility, that we would receive the truth. Father, that you would uh, speak to us that, uh, by your Spirit and cause us to be responsive and to be obedient. Lord, I pray for freedom, pray for healing where it's needed, pray for conviction where it's needed. And God, I ask by your grace that you would move us from the darkness to the light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, probably... Um, we were just talking about maybe a little easier than what we're about to talk about now. Maybe a little uncomfortable, um, you know, for like talking about sex in church. Uh, probably not for a lot of you because we've done it enough here at True Life. It could be worse. You could be the one speaking about it in church. So uh, there you go. Um, but I guess I'm old. It doesn't really faze me too much now. We'll try to avoid any car wrecks, though, like I've had in the past with getting certain phrases mangled together. Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. But uh, seriously, though, uh, I want to make this statement just to kind of start with. Genuine biblical Christianity is always countercultural. I'm not talking about some, you know, pseudo watered-down version of it, but genuine biblical Christianity is always countercultural. Jesus did not call us to fit in. He called us to stand out. He bids us to come and die to take up our cross daily and follow him. So real biblical Christianity is never going to be easy. It's never going to be comfortable. It's never going to be popular. It's never going to acquiesce to the tides of the day, whatever those, those tides may be. That was true in the first century in the Roman Empire, and it's true in the 21st century in the United States of America and anywhere else. And I think that there is probably not any area that this is more clearly demonstrated in or exemplified by than the area of sexuality, if we're honest about it. Um, if we're preaching the Bible, trying to live by the Bible, we should not expect to be popular or fit in. We are to be people who are to speak the truth in love, to be full of grace and truth. We're certainly to contend for a Christian worldview, to speak God's truth, to share the gospel, but we should not expect uh, that to win the applause, the accolades, the popularity of the world. And so uh, if that's your goal, you should probably find a different religion. So, uh, like I said, first century today, we don't fit in. See, sometimes we think, you know, we talk about, you know, and how bad things are today, and they're worse than they've ever been. If you think that's true when it comes to the area of sexuality, you do not know history. We're not the most debauched society sexually that there ever has been. I think just with TV and the Internet, it just gets uh, broadcast more now. But even if you want to go back to the first century, 
man by the name of Clinton Arnold, who I think is hands down the best Bible commentator on Ephesians, if you ever want to do an in-depth study of it. He wrote this that kind of gives us some context of as Paul writes this to uh, the church there in Ephesus. I mean, this is a Gentile congregation. This is not a Jewish congregation where they had spent their whole lives, you know, growing up, being instructed in the law. Uh, you know, these were people that had grown up in a place where their religion was so pagan that part of the idolatry was sexual acts in the temple. And so uh, he writes this, illicit sexual activity was an enormous problem for new Gentile Christians to overcome in the early church, just like it is today. Adulterous relationships, men sleeping with their slave girls, incest, prostitution, sacred sexual encounters in the local temples, and homosexuality were all a part of everyday life. There was not an accepted social standard with regard to sexual relations. Although some Stoics spoke against the prevailing practices in Roman society because they represented a lack of control over the passions, uh, rampant sexual immorality in Greco-Roman society was why the Jews had long been appalled at the behavior of the Gentiles in this regard and considered them to be impure. The Mishnah, an ancient Jewish document, even prohibited a Jewish woman from ever being left alone with a Gentile man because they thought that he could not be trusted sexually. Now, first century, 21st century, actually this quote comes from the 20th century, but even more true today. C.S. Lewis wrote several decades ago in uh, Mere Christianity, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. It's not even popular among Christians. I mean, let's be honest about it. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule and what, what he really means here, what the Bible actually teaches about this, is either marriage, and probably in 2019 I need to add in heterosexual marriage, uh, with complete faithfulness to your partner, or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and contrary to our instincts that either, either obviously, uh, Christianity is wrong, or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong, one or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct which has gone wrong. So this cuts against our instincts, it cuts against society, but I want to show you what the Bible teaches about this. Now, uh, the text we're looking at today, the, the focus is really more on sexual sin, but I think it's important that I start uh, on the positive side of this. And I think it's important that I start by saying, uh, because I think uh, religion has gotten this wrong a lot, and when I say religion, I mean like non-biblical versions of Christianity, or the world stereotypes what where Christians are about this, but um, Christians are not against the body. I mean, what other religion did God take on a human body? I mean, the, the, the whole idea of the incarnation. Um, we don't believe that God is anti-sex. In fact, we believe God created sex, and it's a good gift from him if the gift is used in the right way. It, it wasn't like one day that God looked down on the Garden of Eden and was like, whoa, what did those crazy kids of mine just dream up? I cannot believe what they are doing. God created this from the start. Adam and Eve before sin were naked and not ashamed. Now, if you want a biblical definition of this, you want a biblical definition of marriage, Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a pattern there. And, and, and this is what demonstrates what C.S. Lewis said, that the pattern is, is you leave, you join, and then you consummate. 
you leave your father and mother, you're joined together, you're, that literally means to be permanently super glued together, and then you become one flesh, which is speaking of the sexual union. The idea of the context that God has ordained sex to take place in is in the context of a marriage covenant, where there's commitment first and then sex later, commitment to each other, commitment to him. Uh, you know, the, the, the sex is supposed to be the ultimate expression of intimacy, but that intimacy is first grounded in this covenant where we're fully giving ourselves, our lives to each other. We know each other, and then we know each other physically. We're really the idea of sex, I mean, beyond just the physical part, is it's really between a husband and a wife. It's a spiritual activity. It's a, a symbol of this one flesh relationship, of this connection, of this commitment together that's being expressed then in the sexual union. In a sense, every time a husband and a wife have sex with one another, they're in a sense kind of reaffirming, re-expressing their marriage covenant. And really, it's a beautiful picture. And so, you know, sex is this expression of this, you know, commitment. It's designed to be a protection against temptation. It's obviously for procreation, which is not something that I need to teach at, at True Life. Uh, you know, we do great on that be fruitful and multiply thing around here. And um, <laughs> Leanne probably wants me to start, stop teaching on this, right? So we have some room in the nursery. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, but the Bible also teaches that it's for sexual pleasure, at, at the end of the day, I mean, there's some very explicit passages in Scripture uh, about that. You know, there's Proverbs 5, there's the, the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says this is to be an area of mutual submission within marriage and where the husband and the wife are each uh, committed to meeting the other's uh, needs. Uh, this is God's design. I mean, somebody said, you know, sex is kind of like a fire. If you keep it in the fireplace, it, it gives warmth, it gives heat, it gives ambiance, all those kind of things. But when it gets outside the fireplace, then it becomes dangerous. In the analogy, the fireplace is marriage. And now, you may say that all sounds well and good, and some of you would really say that. Some of you are married, and you know, you're like, amen, uh, we're enjoying this, we're looking forward to going applying this teaching later today, and you think, this is great. Um, don't amen out loud, though, right now, but... Um, but let's be real, though. Others of you are um, the filter kind of goes in the second service, so I may need to apologize in advance. But um, and my wife's not here, so that that helps too. Um, you know, the goal in the first service was just not get in trouble and not create any problems in, at home with anything I said. Um, but seriously, others of you, you're married, and this is a struggle. More than it's, an, you know, it's just not that much a part of your life. Um, you know, others of you are married and you're hiding sexual sin and it's ruining your life. It's ruining your marriage. Some of you are single and you want to be married and want to be having sex. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that depending on what you do uh, with it. That's a God-given uh, desire. Some of you are single and you're stuck in sexual sin. Some of you are in a lifestyle of sexual sin. Some of you probably have been sexually abused at some point, and you hate somebody even talking about this topic. Um, some of you, you're walking in sexual purity right now, but there's sin in your past that 
you're struggling with, with guilt with. And so I, I want to acknowledge that up front and be honest about that. And so wherever this finds you, what would God say to you? And the main point of this passage, and so the main point of what we're going to talk about, is that God wants us to walk in the light. That's the command of verse 8. But, but he's also saying, in Christ, you've been changed. You've been moved from darkness to light. And he now walk in the light. But, you know, and, and so part of what I'm going to do is I'm going to work this through the outline that I gave you last week. But we didn't spend a lot of time on verses 3 through 6 last week. But verses 3 through 6 specifically deal with sexual sin. And so what I want to talk about today is how do we live in the light sexually. And so there's really uh, two things that I want to point out to you, two ways he tells us to walk here. One's to walk in love. The second is to walk in in the light. And and we're going to develop that one more. But let's read the first two verses here to start out. And then we'll read the rest of the text. and, And I'll try to... Uh, I mean, a lot of the focus today, since I expounded this last week, is really going to be on, on application. We're going to try to make this as real life as possible while trying to keep it as PG-13 as possible. So um, verses 1 and 2 say this, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, I'm not denying or disputing the emotional component of love, but can we agree here together as we read verse 2 in God's Word that, that love is defined as something we do. It, it's, it's a lifestyle. We're to walk in love. And it, it speaks here of Christ giving himself for us, and we're to follow his example. So love is actually selfless sacrificial, giving action. Love is a verb. That would be a biblical definition of love. Okay? Once again, not disputing uh, the, the, the feelings of love, but it's important, and, and this is what we often do, we confuse infatuation and real love. Now, this is important to what I, I'm going to say, and it's important to um, just life. Okay, it's important to this topic. It's important to the cultural discussion on this topic. So this is what I'm saying. If we're going to live in sexual purity, that means that we have to walk in love. Or if we're walking in love, that that part of the way that's going to be expressed is by living in sexual purity. And you say, how does that go together? Because, I mean, what, what's the, the, the primary cultural argument against the Christian view on this? Isn't, it, isn't one of them primarily that if two people love each other, what would be wrong with them expressing that through whatever sexual desires they have? And who are we to say if two men, two women, two whatever love each other that they can't express that sexually? Isn't that kind of how the argument goes? But I want us to think through that with a little bit of moral reasoning for a moment. And I'm going to show you another passage of Scripture in the Bible. And uh, some of my thinking here comes from a book called Love Speech, which was written by David Robinson. Some of you don't know that name. A lot of you know David. David uh, used to be at True Life. He was an attorney who became a pastor, believe it or not. 
Uh, God works miracles. And uh, he's now back in Washington State pastoring a church. And he wrote this book called Love Speech. And uh, this is kind of reflecting a couple of chapters from it. But let's go to Romans chapter 13. Either turn there, let's look on the screen. And I want you to see what it says here. It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, even if you're not a Christian, nobody's going to debate that part of that verse, right? That's ooey-gooey. That could be on a Hallmark card. I mean, that sounds good. That feels good. Everybody love each other. Everybody get along. And so, you know, how does this connect to sex and especially sexual morality? Notice he says, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, now, this is where it starts to mess with their minds a little bit, because we don't really tend to think of love and law together, do we? We think law, a bunch of rules, that mean Old Testament stuff. Now God's all about love today. But he says, he who loves another has fulfilled uh, the law. So there is an obvious connection between obedience and morality and love. In fact, Paul would argue here that there's an inseparable connection between the two. And I hope in the next five minutes to help you see that connection. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we love our neighbor? Uh, go back to verse 9, if you would. How, how do we love our neighbor? Well, by not committing adultery, by not murdering, by not stealing, by not coveting, by not bearing false witness. Now, now, now think about this. Some of this I think we get intuitively. I just want to kind of take our thinking a step farther. Obviously, if you kill someone, probably nobody's going to buy it if you say, I killed that person because I love them so much. Right? If um, I, I steal Preston's phone and leave a card and say, hey, I really love you. I want you to know that. That doesn't quite go together. If I falsely accuse Charlie of something one minute and the next minute I'm saying, how much, uh, tell him how much I love him, he's probably not buying that. Right? If, uh, if, if, I, if I say to some guy, you know, I love you, bro, but I've been coveting your wife, he's probably not thinking of that as a real loving kind of thing. Now, think about adultery for just a, a second. What if a man and a woman who are married to other spouses, for whatever reason, began to have this attraction to one another, and they fall in love, and they act on that sexually, and they say, we love each other, so how could this be wrong? Well, let me ask you a question. If they, at that point, are committing, at that point they are committing adultery, would the wife of the man... Say that she's being loved? Would the husband of the wife uh, say that she, he's being loved? What about the kids that are involved? Or, or, or would they say that they are being loved? Other people within that circle. We're talking about Christians here. Is this a loving thing to do towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? When we think about the reproach that it's going to bring on the name of Christ. And the reproach that it's going to bring on the testimony of 
the local church. And so he says then in verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now go back to verse 9. Uh, these actions would be ultimately wrong because you're doing harm by committing adultery, murdering, stealing, bearing false witness, and coveting, and love does no harm. Therefore, when something does harm, it's not loving. Therefore, it's wrong. Therefore, you can't separate true love and morality because love is an action. Now, let me take it even though a step further. Because sometimes people would argue if two, like two consenting adults doing whatever, you know, who's really getting harmed here? Well, let's kind of circle around for a second. Let's, let's think about the definition of harm, and let me just give you a couple of examples to think about. So when you think about the word harm and what it means, if you look it up in, in the dictionaries, dictionary.com, whatever, um, you know, the first definition you're going to get is harm is doing physical or mental injury to someone. We, we know that we can that someone can be harmed in uh, that way. But if you look up and, and see the second definition, it, all, it, it would say it also means moral injury, evil, or wrong. And so here's what I, I would say. If, if you are sinning against someone, you are not only harming that person in a potential mental or physical sense, you are harming that person in a spiritual sense, and if you're sinning with someone, the two of you together are harming one another because you're doing wrong, which is you're, you're alienating yourselves then from God. But take it even a step farther. Let's say that a, a 60-year-old man, quote, falls in love with a 10-year-old girl. And uh, he convinces this 10-year-old girl that she's in love with him and, and somehow, you know, finds a way uh, to connect with her and they, they, quote, act on this love physically. Would we say that's morally right? I hope not. But if the criteria for being able to act sexually is two people, quote, loving each other, in their minds, don't they meet that criteria at that point? So we might ought to have another argument there. Here's what I'm saying. This man has clearly harmed this girl. But even if she weren't 10, there's still a spiritual harm there. But let's, let's take it a step farther. You say, well, that's kind of extreme. Well, here's another extreme example. What about incest? Brother or sister, two close relatives, quote, fall in love with each other, act on it sexually. That's doing harm because we know what happens genetically when that happens. Say so once again, that's, a, uh, that's an extreme example. What about adultery? You know, these two people love each other, but families, other people are being harmed. But you say, okay, what about two unmarried people having sex with each other? How could that, you know, they, quote, love each other. How could there be harm there? Or, or, or you know, apply it to homosexuality. The, the issue is, morally, 
there can be spiritual harm. And so if we're not following the law of God, that's what makes it right or wrong, not some, quote, supposed feelings of love. Because once you admit that as the criteria, listen to me, you have no moral basis for saying that pedophilia or incest or anything else is wrong. That's the slippery slope that we're heading down. And we, as Bible-believing Christians, do not need to succumb to this kind of reasoning. It's not biblical, it's not logical, and it doesn't fit the natural law either. So walking in love and walking in sexual purity go hand in hand. So I would say, this, to wrap this part of it up, is if you really love someone, and I'm not questioning your feelings, but if you want to act in love towards someone, don't sin sexually with them. And certainly don't sin sexually against them. But follow God's laws, God's plan, make a marriage covenant, and then you're free within that to enjoy each other for the rest of your lives. That's God's plan and God's purpose. So he says, walk in love. But then he says, walk in the light. So what, what's this look like? Well, let's, let's read the rest of the text, and we'll break it down. And, and like I said, we'll really try to focus on applying it. So Ephesians uh, 5.3, just to pick back up uh, there, says, but fornication, which is kind of the junk drawer, uh, Greek term, porneia, any kind of sexual sin, uh, particularly outside of marriage, there's a different term for adultery, all uncleanness, which just literally means, you know, what it says. This would be motive, heart kind of thing, or covetousness, which I believe in this context is referring to lust. Remember, the, the 10th commandment refers to don't covet not just money, property, but also your neighbor's wife. In this context of sexual sin, it's basically synonymous with, with lust, unrighteously wanting someone who doesn't belong to you in a covenant relationship. It says, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. He's talking to Christians here. We're not, we're not expecting non-Christians to have the same sexual ethics that Bible-believing Christians do. He says, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean per sorry, I skipped a verse. It says, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, uh, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, uh, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For, which means because you were once darkness, this is who you were before Christ, but now you are light in the Lord. This is your new identity. Walk as children of light. In other words, you are light now, so live like it. I mean, that's the main idea of this whole text. It says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and, and, and truth. So if there's going to be the fruit of the Spirit in our sexual lives, it means there'd be goodness, righteousness, and truth there finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So, 
And I want to work this issue of our, of our sexuality, our sexual sin, through the outline that I gave you last week. So, number one, we walk in the light, uh, sexually, any other way, by understanding and living out of our new identity. This is who we were. This is who we are. Now, to get more specific about what the Bible says about this when it comes to sex, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says this. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You're not who you were in Christ. You're not your sexual sin. You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. You're not darkness, you're light, you're new. He says to live like it. Well, how do we do that? Well, let me give you a very practical example. Okay, um, one of the myths about homosexuality is that homosexuals can't change. There's abundant evidence of people who are practicing homosexual lifestyle, who are now in heterosexual marriage, have had kids, so on and, and so forth. It would be one of the arguments against people being genetically predetermined, born that way, okay? Now, I mean, maybe it doesn't prove in every case that somebody say back, well, come back, come back and say some people are, some people aren't. I'm just saying that's one of the facts that have to be uh, considered. And so... Uh, Rob and I had a friend when we were in seminary at Southeastern. His name was Eric Garner. And Eric had been a practicing homosexual uh, for about 10 years. He actually got kicked out of the Navy because he was openly flaunting uh, his homosexual lifestyle. But in, I think it was 1990, uh, we were seminary from 1993 to 1995, um, Eric came to Christ. God saved him. At the point in time in which we uh, knew him, he, he was married. His wife's name's Kelly. As a kid, I can't remember if they if they uh, if he was born then yet or not. Uh, but uh, so married, has a child, and um, so you know we knew him. He was very open uh, about this. But uh, you know, after he first got saved, he really struggled because um, you know he was still in this lifestyle. You know, he said it's all he knew how to be. He didn't really know how to break out of it. But at the same time, God was just dealing with him about it, was convicting him, uh, you know, was just breaking him over the wrongness of it. And, and, and I'll just use this to insert this point. Listen, you being saved doesn't necessarily mean you're sexually perfect. But if you're really saved, you can't sin in any way, including this way, and not be convicted about it. I mean, if you think you can you know, be saved and live however you want to live, in this or any other way, you're not really saved. And that's what he was experiencing. But like, and, and sometimes, I mean, and, and let's be honest, and that's kind of the idea of you know, even the Conquer series. We're in Christ, we're new, but we're still battling with some old things in our lives. And all of us have this in different ways. And the idea of being the church together is we're not to condemn each other for these things, but if people are open and honest and repentant and trying to change, we're to walk alongside each other and do everything we can to help people live in, in the light. That's part of what it means to be the church, part of what it means to walk in love. But here's just a little snippet of Eric's testimony. He said this, he said, Being gay was all I knew how to be, or so I thought. 
Scared and confused, one night I prayed, God, I don't know how not to be gay, but I do know how to be a Christian. I know how to read the Bible. I know how to understand it. I know how to believe what it says, and I know how to do what it says. So, and, and, and this is the money part of this quote. You've got to grab onto this. He said, so I'm going to start focusing on being a Christian rather than not being gay. You know what he was saying? He's saying, I'm going to start living out of my new identity in Christ. I'm not going to focus on my sin anymore, but I'm going to live as a new creation in Christ, meditating on the Word of God, claiming the promises of God, obeying what God says, and realizing that I'm now dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ, and that God will empower me to obey Him. And as I trust Him and obey Him, God will change me, and He'll change my circumstances, and He'll change my life. And that's how He got freedom out of, uh, from this, by living out of His new identity identity in Christ. And that's how it works for every area of our lives. That's, that's the, that illustrates the entire point of the book of Ephesians, that we live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. Second, we walk in the light by repenting of our old sinful ways. Now, let's go back uh, to verse 3 and kind of work our way uh, through verses 3 through 6, okay? So there's really four specific things in these verses that he tells us to repent of. He tells us in verse 3 when he mentions fornication and uncleanness to repent of our sinful actions. So he, he would say to each of us, whatever it is, whether it's, uh, you know, fornication, you know, having premarital sex, adultery, pornography, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. If those are a part of our lives as believers, we're to confess that uh, to God, confess it to others. We're to repent. We're to do whatever we can to lay that down. That's what he's saying. He says also, though, that we're to repent of, sex, uh, of sinful desires. Now, let me be very precise here. I mean, like I said, when he talks about covetousness, he's talking about lust. There's a difference in desire and lust, okay? Um, sexual desires are normal. Sexual desires within marriage are right. It's when we have desire for someone outside of our spouse that it becomes sinful. And, you know, it's not noticing that someone's attractive I mean, you know, we need to be careful with what we put in our minds, but we can't completely, um, we can't completely control that. And we're talking in a minute, we need to do what we can, but we can't completely control that. Let, let, let me give you an example of that. So Friday morning, uh, I'm reading my Bible, you know, having my devotional time like I usually do in the mornings. Usually I do it with version on my phone. Sometimes I use an actual Bible. I'm doing it a little bit different. I was listening to music and actually reading my Bible through Bible Gateway on the computer. I'm on Bible Gateway. That's, I'm reading uh, a text in, uh, in, in a book of Numbers, at the beginning of the book of Numbers, some exciting stuff, you know. And, um, <laughs> I mean, I've gotten to where I actually, because uh, I've learned to read through more gospel-centered eyes, I enjoy Leviticus, but then you get into those first chapters of Numbers. It takes a few minutes for that to warm up a little bit. But I'm in Numbers, but on the left side of the screen, there's a Nordstrom ad that pops up, and one of the pictures is a woman in lingerie. 
And so at that point, I, can't, I couldn't control what I saw, but I control what I do from there. Do I look at it? If you look at it, what do you do? You start thinking, and then it goes from there. So I clicked off the ad. And then another ad pops up. I don't remember the name of the company, but it's, it's a woman. It's advertising athletic apparel. It's a woman in a sports bra and yoga pants. So once again, I can't control that, but I can control my response. So click off that. That's what, it's not sexual desire. It's lust is you know, wanting someone who doesn't belong to you. On the other hand, if I'm thinking those thoughts about Robin, and I'll spare you any details there, you know, that, that's a righteous kind of thing. That's, so are there sinful desires that we need to repent of? Are, are, are there you know, thoughts that we're thinking, the ways that we're looking at people? Are we objectifying the opposite sex? Are we feeding our minds with things that we shouldn't be? If, if we're honest, this is an ongoing battle for every man sitting here, that we have to guard what we, what we see, what we think about, those kind of things. I understand that. You know, uh, if I could rip off a Craig Rochelle line that I like, he, he said, you know, believe it or not, before I was a pastor, I was a man. And, and, and so, get this, you got to be careful with that. He also tells us then in, in verse uh, 4, to repent of sinful words. I mean, he used some phrase there, phrase there, filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting, which are not fitting. So this would be kind of stuff like, um, you know, making lewd comments about the opposite sex. You know, men can be really bad for this, you know, and, and it's sin. Objectifying, misogyny, those kind of things are, are sin. It's kind of like, you know, last presidential campaign, you know, there's some footage came out of President Trump on a hot mic, you know, making some lewd kind of comments, and, uh, you know, he excused it, sort of, as he called it locker room talk. But that's no excuse. I mean, there's not a place for this kind of thing. The Christian had to be careful about our jokes. We need to be careful about our conversation, you know, with the opposite sex at work online, those kind of things. And then he tells us in verses 5 and 6 to repent of sinful beliefs. And I want us to read these verses because as we went through this before, this may have prompted a question. I hope it prompted a question. Let's put verse 5 back up there if we could. So he says, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and kingdom of Christ and God. So you may think, does that mean if I ever sinned sexually, I'm going to hell? Is that what that's saying? I mean, look in verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here's what these verses are saying. This verse is a warning against false teaching that basically says you can name the name of Christ and live any way you want to live sexually. That's the warning when he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. That's the warning in context. It's a warning against antinomianism, which means against the law that we've talked about earlier in Ephesians. It's an encouragement to live our lives like we've talked about. Coram Deo, in the face of God, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God, including sexually realizing that he sees and knows all. The tense in the Greek of verse 5, it's not saying if you've ever done this. It's saying if you continue to do this unrepentantly, it's a sign that you've never been saved. And so 
the big picture here is this. If, if we name the name of Jesus Christ, every area of our lives, including our sexuality, is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And remember, God knows what we're doing and what we're thinking, even if we think nobody else does. Here, here's, I think, a great illustration of it. Uh, Kanye West was on the Jimmy Kimmel show at recently, and Jimmy Kimmel said something like, so Kanye, are, are, you, are you now a, a Christian musical artist? And I think he had a perfect response that applies to this. He said, no, I'm a Christian everything. That's the idea. We can't like pick and choose. We can't compartmentalize Jesus. I'm a Christian here. Now I'm going to do what I want here. That's the idea. And, you know, and part of you know, what would seem to be uh, the fruit, uh, the evidence of genuine conversion with him is, is he's talked very openly about repenting of pornography, which he began uh, uh, being involved with pornography at five years old when he saw his father's Playboy uh, magazine. He's talked about repenting of that. Uh, you know, he's, he's lamenting uh, misogynist statements that he's made. Those kind of things. Uh, listen, I, this is, I had a conversation with a man one time as a pastor who was talking with, he was married, talking with a woman, contemplating leaving his wife for this other woman. And, and part of what I said to him is this. Obviously, as a human being, you have choices here, and I can't control those choices. But this is what I can tell you about your choices. You, you can choose to commit adultery uh, with this wo woman if you want to, but you can't choose to commit adultery with this woman and play the Jesus card at the same time. You can't pursue uh, this lifestyle brazenly in rejection to the word of God and say, I prayed a prayer a few years ago and played the get out of hell free card and act like you can do whatever you want because Jesus is Lord over all. And any teaching that, that says, well, grace will cover it all and you know, you're saved, so it's fine, is antinomian, unbiblical, heretical teaching. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, 6. So he says, repent. Where do we need to repent? If, if we're honest about this, there are actions, desires, words, beliefs that we need to bring into line with God's word because to live in the light instead of the darkness, it comes by living under the authority of scripture. Number three, we walk in the light by seeking to determine and do the will of the, of the Lord in any particular situation. That's what verse 10 uh, tells us. And so here's the thing. I got some good news for you. You know, one of the, one of the most common questions that people ask pastors, well, like, how do I know God's will for my life? Can I just tell you when it comes to this one, it is absolutely crystal clear. Okay, I got a verse for you. Because, like, sometimes we're like, well, who am I supposed to marry? There's not a verse, right? Where am I supposed to work? There's not a verse. You know, should I live here or there? There's not a verse. But on this one, I got a verse. You may not like the verse, but I got a verse for you, okay? So you, you might want to write this one down somewhere, but it's 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, all right? So this is like the will of God for dummies, or this is like... Preschool, the, I mean, now I know it's a lot harder to live out, but as far as knowing what it is, he says this is the will of God, your sanctification, your spiritual growth, your growth into the image of Christ, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So you want to live God's will for your life? A really good start would be abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, 
you may say, well, that's a lot easier said than done. I say, amen. So how are we going to do it? Well, I got another verse for you, okay? This is something that's greatly helped me with this area in my life. I found it to be very helpful as I've shared it with men, particularly in talking about pornography over the years. It's Romans 13, 14. And Paul there writes, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now, there's two sides here that are both extremely important to walking in obedience and living in victory in this area of our lives. There's the spiritual side. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we're probably not going to win this battle in our own strength. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning abide in him. Be filled with the Spirit. Put on the armor of God. You know, be seeking him. Be spending time with him. Live in his power, his strength, his wisdom, not our own. Listen, the, the thing about sex and sexual sin is it's only partially physical. Yes, we have that drive. God has made us that way. But sexual sin is a whole lot deeper than that. Sexual sin is like any other sin. It's trying to fill a hole that only Jesus can fill. That's the reality. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that, we have the strength to do what he wants us to do. But there's a really practical side to this. And that's where he says to make no provision for the flesh. That means if we're really serious about this, and I think if this has been a struggle in your life, this is one of these things you've got to hate to overcome. Because let's be real. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, right? And, and, and that's really true when it comes to sex, right? If it's not pleasurable, you're not doing it right. I mean, that's just kind of what it boils down to. But you know what the problem is? There's pleasure in sin for a season, but there's death at the end. And that's why the Puritan John Owen said, we better be killing our sin or sin will be killing us. I mean, that's really what this boils down to. We better be killing our sin, or sin will be killing us. Make no provision for the flesh. You know, a lot of times we want to play around in it, you know, kind of, it, it's like, kind of like, you know, if, if you're on a diet and you keep driving by Smucker's Donut Trailer all day long. You got to kill it, Right? The more you play around with it, the more likely it is to happen. So you say, how do you do that? Maybe you need an accountability partner. I, I would say anybody. Why not get Covenant Eyes or some kind of filtering software on your computer and your phone and make it as hard as possible to sin? And I heard Craig Gochelle talk about that one time. He said, at this point in my life, I may only be tempted with something like that one day a year. But I'd rather deal with that in advance than in the moment. And he said something that applies here that's really just, it's, it's simple, but it's brilliant. Why resist a temptation tomorrow that you can eliminate today? Why resist a temptation tomorrow that you can eliminate today? Make it as hard as possible to sin. There ought to be somebody in your life, maybe a few somebodies that have your passwords, that have access, can have access to whatever you're doing online. Why should that be a secret from your spouse? You know, in a work situation, Andy, Jessica, they can both get my computer, phone, whatever. Um, we need to be careful in our interaction with the opposite sex. I mean, if you're married, outside of necessary things, outside of business stuff, why should you be on the phone, online, going to have lunch with somebody besides your spouse? I'm not saying it's wrong, but is there wisdom in it? Does it honor your spouse? Does it, take a, does it take a chance? 
Does it take a chance on somebody looking at you and, and making the wrong conclusion? You know, Mike Pence, when he said that, took a lot of flack over it. But, you know, I remember Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, you know, talking about that when he went to a different seminary one time and saying this is how he does things. And, you know, professors there giving him a hard time about it. He says, I don't care what you call me as long as you can't call me an adulterer. Be careful. Make it hard to sin. Why resist the temptation tomorrow that you can eliminate today? If we really want to overcome it, we can't play around with it. If you're in a dating relationship, you have some safeguards set up. Because let's be real about this. You spend too much time alone without any accountability. There's a really good chance that on some level you're just going to do what comes natural. Right? If you're attracted to somebody, you're attracted physically. There's a, there's a song. It's actually never been released. He's played it live. This, this is... Some of you should write this down. This, I think, is probably a first in my 17 years of preaching at True Life Church, but I'm going to quote from a country song. <laughs> I mean, I know this is shocking because, in my mind, country music only ranks slightly ahead of cats, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I have actually found an exception to that. Chris Stapleton, he's so good, it, it defies genre. But anyway, he wrote a song. And, 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 he, he, and, you know, maybe it's worldly, but there's actually biblical godly wisdom in this, okay? He, he says, I know it ain't all that late, but you should probably leave. And I recognize that look in your eyes, yeah, you should probably leave. And of course, because I know you and you know me, and we both know where this is going to lead, and you want me to say that I want you to stay, so you should probably leave. There's still time for you to finish your wine, but then you should probably leave. And it's hard to resist, all right, just one kiss, then you should probably leave. Because I know you and you know me, and we both know this is where, where this is going to lead. And you want me to say that I want you to stay, so you should probably leave. Like a devil on a shoulder, you keep whispering in my ear. And it's getting kind of hard for me to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. Sun on your skin, it's 6 a.m., and I've been watching you sleep. Honey, I'm so afraid you're going to wake up and say that you should probably leave. Because I know you, and you know, know me, and we both know where this is going to lead. I want you to stay, but you'll probably say that you should probably leave. Yeah, you should probably leave. The end of sin is death. Here's the point. If you know where this is going to lead, you should definitely leave. That's the idea. Don't play around with sin. Be killing our sin, or sin will be killing us. Last thing. And I know it's late, but I think this is too important for me not to finish. And um, so, here we go. Last point. Uh, we walk in the light by exposing sin instead of participating in sin. Verse 11 says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, let me be clear here. We're talking about Christians. We do not expect non-Christians to live according to Christian sexual ethics without knowing Jesus. Now, we're going to share the truth. We're going to contend for a Christian worldview. We're going to share the gospel. But think about it. 
if, if, if we would admit that it's hard for us to live this righteously as Christians with the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, how are you going to expect somebody to live this without the Holy Spirit? All right? So not talking about non-Christians. Right? I'm talking about Christians. And so I want to remind us of Galatians 6.1. It says, if we see a brother overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And so that means that sometimes we're to give loving correction to one another. And that means that sometimes we need to receive correction from one another. Now, I said, I want to make this very real, very practical. So uh, we're going to flesh this out with some video clips, okay? Now, the video clips are going to be from The Bachelorette. Now, if you're thinking, does he watch The Bachelorette? Please repent of thinking that. Uh, I mean, that has never happened. You say, well, how does he know about this? Well, uh, I, I keep an Evernote, a, a sermon file, or file of sermon illustrations. But, and so this was in my Evernote file. But it comes, it's kind of, it comes to the, the origin of it and some of the things I'm saying. There's a Christian journalist, her name's Julie Royce, that I really like her writing. And, and, and she, she wrote about this. And she, kind of the context, she talked about being in a Bible study one time when she was in college, some Christian ladies. Uh, one of them started committing sexual sin. She said something to her about it. You know, the lady kind of dropped the relationship, all that kind of thing. And uh, so, uh, you know, which we, we tend to do. And, and then uh, she, she started talking about the bachelorette and how this kind of, we have this tendency either to shirk back from, you know, correcting one another, doing what this verse says and exposing uh, the unfruitful works of darkness, or we have this tendency to get defensive, to make excuses, to justify when anyone says something to us. And I want to help us practically overcome both sides of that, okay? So she said uh, that, you know, this dynamic played out on national TV, happened on The Bachelorette. So there's two contestants. The Bachelorette, uh, her name is Hannah, professing Christian. And, and one of the men, his name's Luke, is a professing Christian. Do some of you see this? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's okay if, if it's like young females who saw it. If it's guys, I got some questions. But uh, anyway, um, so, they're, so they're both professing to be Christians, okay? But she, she's actually been sleeping around with some of the contestants. He doesn't know this at the beginning of this, okay? But I guess she's talking about it or whatever. So he begins to ask her about it, talk about it as they're, you know, considering this relationship together. So what we're going to do is we've just kind of, you know, spliced some, some little video clips. We'll show you some short video clips of her, of him kind of, you know, confronting her a little bit, her excuses. And I'm kind of going to give you an explanation, uh, and, and we're going to end with this, okay? Thinking about fantasy suites, like, I've heard people proclaim their faith, but yet they've said things like, yeah, I'm excited for fantasy suites. I want to explore this relationship on a sexually intimate level, and that's what I'm looking forward to. And to me, that's like, whoa, 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 what? Mm -hmm. Excuse me? There's something I'm missing here. Like, I don't believe that's something that you should be doing. And I just want to make sure you're not going to be, you know, sexually intimate with you know, the other relationships here. Okay. 
Like, I totally have all the trust in the world for you. But at the same time, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Like, if I, I mean, if I, if you told me you're having sex or you had sex with one or multiple of these guys, I'd be wanting to go home. I'm, like, kind of mad because, like, the way that you just said that, it's like, why do you have the right to do that? Because you're not my husband. Okay, so first, first response is, you're not my husband, so you don't have the right to do that. But based on what we just read in Galatians 6.1, as a fellow believer, he not only has a right, he's commanded to do that. And plus, I mean, even apart from that, I mean, if they're thinking about developing a relationship with one another, this seems like a reasonable question, right? It's not like he called her a bunch of bad names or something like that, okay? So that's kind of the first response, you know, you, you don't have the right to do this. So that's not true. Now look at her second response. Can I get you off for a second? No. Okay. It's just that, you are, that you're questioning me, that you're judging me, and feel like you have the right to when you don't at this point. That's the classic response, right? Stop judging me, right? And what we have to understand, you read 1 Corinthians 5, Paul commanded the church at Corinth to judge sexual sin in the name of Jesus Christ. We're in different places in the New Testament. We're commanded to judge. You know, in, in Matthew 7, that literally means, when it says, you know, judge not, you be not judged, means condemn not, that you be not condemned. There's other places where the word judge means discern. We're always to discern right and wrong as believers. And so, you know, if you're wrong in something, if I'm wrong in something, stop, still, telling somebody to stop judging me does nothing to make it right. It's absolutely not the issue. Okay? Look at the third one. And I get when you, like, care for somebody that you don't want to think about somebody being intimate with another person. But guess what? Sex might be a sin out of marriage. Pride is a, is a sin, too. And I feel like this is like a pride thing. So someone points out something in you, uh, what do you do? You turn around and you start pointing something out in the other person, right? It's very immature. Now, it may be true. It may not be true. But deal with the issue at hand. And you know what the irony of what she just said is? Well, what she just said before, you can't judge me. Wasn't she just judging him? She's called him proud. That's usually an excuse. All right, look at the fourth one. I'm a grown woman and can make my own decisions, and I don't, I'm not strapped to a man right now. All right, true statement. I mean, that, that is true on a human level, but problem is if you're a Christian, you are strapped to a man. His name is Jesus Christ, and he, he is our Lord, and that, he reigns over us. And read 1 Corinthians 6. I mean, if we're joining Jesus, with an, if we're joining with another person sexually, the Bible says it's like joining Jesus to a harlot. And, you know, that's kind of using feminist ideology right there as an excuse. Let's turn the tables for a second. What if she was confronting him and he said, boys will be boys? What if he said, that's just locker room talk? Nobody's buying that. It's excuses. And what I'm saying is fine if you're not a Christian, but if you are in Christ, it's a different thing. He's our Lord. Let's, let's look at the next one. And honestly, like, you have already broken my heart through this. Like, truly, and I've broken my... So, so what's she doing there? Making herself a victim, right? Not the issue. All right, not the issue at all. All right, show the next one. I do not want you to be my husband. So get mad, break off the relationship. Still doesn't deal with the issue. Still doesn't deal with, you know, what you're doing right or wrong. And then here's the last one. 
So like, I have had sex. Say what? Yeah. And I, Jesus still loves me. True statement, but once again, not the issue. Talk about antinomianism, that's an antinomian statement. Because the issue is, if, if I've sinned sexually and I'm saved, it ought to break my heart. Because Jesus loves me so much, and he died for my sin. And you know my sin put him on the cross, and so to flaunt it in the name of Jesus loving me, what an affront to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the point I'm making is this. Don't be intimidated by these kind of responses into not doing what the Bible tells you to do if it's needed in a situation to speak the truth in love. And don't respond. If you're in the wrong and you're in sin, repent. You know, don't pull out this kind of junk because it may feel good and some people may be swayed by it. But I mean, if you really stop and analyze it, it means nothing. There's still the issue of right and wrong. Walk in love, walk in the light. You know, he closes this in verse 14. Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Wake up. If you're not in Christ, you're still in your sin. You're still in the darkness. By the grace of God, if he's calling you, wake up, repent. Place your faith and trust in Jesus. Repent of your sexual sin, your other sin. Trust him and what he did for you on the cross. If you're a Christian, you're living in sexual sin, bring it from the darkness to the light. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to brothers and sisters in Christ. Get help with it. If you've been sinned against sexually, bring it to the light where healing can begin. Let other people walk with you uh, through that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and we'll close with prayer.